At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Sowing the seeds of cannabis and sounding the praise of our favorite plants, it's time to Hemp Resent. Our radio resident Hempo Sapien, Vivian McPeak, will present a weekly platform for guests and listeners to Hemp Resent about hemp and cannabis from the legal, activist, and reformist route. Let's round up and roll it up for our headmaster of hemp, Vivian McPeak. weekly radio podcast where you can get your PhD in THC because you don't just want to burn it, you want to learn it. Seeking to defeat the alternative facts of prohibition one interview at a time and advocating for the plant, the whole plant, and nothing but the plant. Join me for a weekly reefer radio rebellion against prohibition as I speak with some of the principal risk takers, movers and shakers, and history makers of the cannabis industry, culture, and reform movement. I'm your host, Vivian McPeak. I am the executive director of the world's largest annual cannabis policy reform event, the Seattle Hemp Fest. Entering its 28th year and founded hempfest.org. I'm also the author of the book Protestable, a 20 year retrospective of Seattle Hempfest from AHA Publishing, also found at hempfest.org. Okay, you can't really get a PhD listening to this show, but you will occasionally hear me speak to someone who has one. Today I speak with Michelle Newhart, PhD, and her husband, William Dolphin, to discuss their new book, The Medicalization of Marijuana Legitimacy, Stigma, and the Patient Experience. Their exhaustive and in-depth work covers a wide range of subjects and issues, included but not limited to trends in doctor-patient interactions around cannabis, patterns for managing medical cannabis use and defining what is medical, differences between medical and non-medical patterns of use, risk to patients and how they combat stigma, cannabis in the context of medicine, health, and big pharma, and we'll cover a few other things in today's discussion. Michelle Newhart earned her PhD in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder, and she currently works as an instructional designer and teaches sociology part-time at a very large community college in Southern California. This book grew out of her dissertation work at CU Boulder, where she collected interviews with patients and attended events as the medical cannabis program unfolded there. Prior to graduate school, Michelle worked for about eight years as the editor for Ed Rosenthal's publishing company. Her co-author and husband, William Dolphin, teaches English and education courses at University of Redlands and has for over a decade written a newsletter for Americans for Safe Access. They both have worked on writing, editing, or research in the area of cannabis and medical cannabis for nearly 20 years. For as long as many of us can remember, cannabis, usually referred to as marijuana, was public enemy number one of the intoxicant class. But that's slowly beginning to change as brick-and-mortar state legal retail operations dispense weed faster than a 7-Eleven might sell beer or soda. Just within the last month or so, Canada has legalized cannabis. I use that word legalized rather loosely. And Medico looks to be – Mexico looks to be on the brink of doing the same. The entire paradigm looks to be shifting as fast as you can say, pass me the potato chips. One of the biggest and most promising areas that cannabis might play a primary future role in – is medical marijuana, and I'm delighted to have these two brilliant minds on the show today to talk about their new book. Welcome, Michelle and William, to Cannabis Radio. I've enjoyed your book immensely. Well, thank you, thank Vivian. you so it's much. My pleasure. Uh, let me start off by asking why you wanted to write this particular book on the subject of the medicalization of cannabis. Michelle, if you could boil it all down, uh, why this book at this time? Well. Um, the book's timing is 
partly, you know, um, this is a great time to have a book about this, but uh, the work really, the timing was based a lot on the timing of the research, um, which was key. It was based on when Colorado um, underwent major changes while I was living there, starting with the Ogden memo, and that really changed how the federal government was dealing with medical cannabis patients who were legal at the state level. And so this study was an attempt to capture some part of that change and the experiences of patients through that change. And part of the book, you know, captures a moment in time, but also builds on that to uh, think about the larger picture of what's happening and offer something that um, more researchers can build on. Speaking of research, while you were researching this book, were there things that you found counterintuitive and, and surprising to you? Uh, what were a few of your biggest takeaways? And, I, and I'm asking you both. Well, um, I think, you know, one of the most interesting parts about research is when you find something different than what you expected to find. And as you mentioned, we've both been working in this space for a long time. But um, that, as a researcher, it's, it's really interesting um, to find something that doesn't quite fit or is surprising with what you expected to find and figure out how that fits uh, with the overall picture and puzzle it out. And um, I think one of my biggest takeaways was that medicine isn't a thing. <laughs> it's, it's a behavior. It's an orientation toward something. And, you know, medicine is a category, just like all other human categories that we impose on things. And I think before this, I had thought about it as, you know, like pills are medicine. But really what we found in the study is that, you know, um, med medicine is also a behavior. It's how you um, behave towards something. And that's more obvious with something like cannabis because right now there's still only um, – some differentiation between something that looks like a recreational substance and something that looks like uh, or a social use substance and something that looks like medicine. And so it has a lot to do with how people decide to uh, keep track of that, how they decide to use it and what context and for what purpose. And so that was a really provocative idea and an interesting way to think about it for me. And it, it led me to think a lot about the differences between medical treatment, because medicine isn't always taking a pill. There are many types of therapy. And uh, medicines themselves, as in pharmaceuticals and, and also healthy behaviors. And those things aren't all equivalent. They're separable and can be thought about in different ways. Bill, any surprises old, for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just echo that, too. I mean, there's an old saying, the dose makes the poison, you know, and we sort of flip it around to say, you know, the behavior makes the medicine. Um, and, you know, as, as you said at the start, you know, we're at a paradigm shift here, and central to how we present uh, the information in the book is that there has been a single story about what it means to be a cannabis user. And it's been all about intoxication and usually about being some sort of criminal deviant. And things like medical use obviously drive a wedge into that definition because that doesn't cover that, right? This is entirely different. So how do we understand that? And particularly around a substance which largely is not distinguished in how it's used or what it is when it's being used. Now, and of course, there are real differences between what patients use and how they use it than other things, but it comes down to behavioral things and dosage things and things like that. So understanding that's important, and you know, we spend quite a bit of time thinking about in the book uh, how medical effects are achieved. And even around given substances, it's well understood based on a lot of prior research, you know, starting interestingly with Timothy Leary, that you know, it's not just the chemical compound that makes the effect, it's the setting in which you take it, and that can be both your mindset and your physiological condition, uh, but the, or the set, right? And then the setting, the location in which you're doing it. So it's real different to use something in a clinic than to use something at a rave. Your very comprehensive book is a fairly heady read for the average reader. Who was this work written for, and who can gain the most by reading the medicalization of marijuana? 
Well, first and foremost, it's an academic book, right, as, as you've noted. I mean, uh, it's written to be serious. Um, you know, one of the things that comes out in the subtitle is that legitimacy is a central concern for patients. They have to create their own legitimacy because medicalization is not complete with this substance. It's not been fully incorporated into formal medicine yet and may never be. But the legitimacy question also uh, falls on researchers, right? There's perhaps some reason why there's been so little behavioral science research on how people use cannabis because it's always been construed as this criminal thing or this deviant thing and a part of criminology, not part of medical treatment. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's part of it. William, before we get too far in the show, you have a 20% off code for listeners if they purchase the book online directly from, is it Routledge, uh, your publisher? How does that work and what is the code? Well, you know, we've just discovered that, uh, happily enough, the publisher appears to have decided that it's 20% off for everybody right now if you buy oh. it directly from them. So nice. it's routledge.com, R-O-U-T-L-E-D-G-E.com, um, and you just have to go on there and search for the medicalization of marijuana, and you'll find it. But that brings the price down to just over $30, and I think that comes with free shipping, too. Uh, so it's it's been priced to be accessible, um, you know. And in terms of the, you know, back to the question about who it's written for, you know, we we really tried to make it a crossover book that's available and accessible to a lot of different types of readers. Obviously, there's real questions around policy. Uh, we're hoping that the folks who make the rules around this will be mindful to how people actually use it. But there's also a real important part that is about the patients themselves. And again, as we were saying, you know, if it's a stigmatized thing, something that people are bashful about talking about, they may not feel comfortable being as public in their discussions about it or feel like they're not like other people. So by reading a book like this, you get a sense of, you know, kind of what it is that other people's experiences are. And, uh, and I think hopefully there's also the sense that, you know, this is relatively authoritative. You know, we've got over 400 references in it, so, you know, we, we try to make a very serious uh, approach to it that says this is something that deserves serious consideration, uh, not just jokes or dismissive, um, you know, things like that. Jokes about cannabis? Oh, we've never heard anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Well, yeah, and I mean, the beginning chapters are quite heavy in that they try to give a good, succinct uh, history, both a, a kind of a modern medical cultural history and then a policy overview. But then once you get past those two, um, it really is very story driven from uh, the patient's perspective and um, we really feel like patients or prospective patients or even family members of uh, patients can get something out of it. And the stories of the patients are, are really quite powerful. Like um, when uh, I hold was... That, hold um, that thought, Michelle. i got to go to a break. My guest is Michelle Newhart and William Dolphin, both of them. We still have a cause, but we still have to pause for a minute to hear from our, our sponsor, advertisers. We'll pick that up when we get back. Time to roll out for the people that let us have present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Cannabis concentrates have been around for thousands of years. In 19th century America, extracts mixed with other herbs were sold as a miracle cure. Now, Apex Supercritical has elevated the science of extraction into the 21st century. Apex Supercritical is the leader in CO2 extraction, which is the cleanest, safest, and purest way to extract plant oils. ROI in as little as three weeks. Our cost-effective systems are fully automated with an industry-leading three-year warranty. And if we don't have your system in stock. We can build one in as little as four weeks. Bringing CO2 extraction to the masses. Learn more at apeksupercritical.com. Four-week build excludes high production systems. Introducing Blue Moon CBD, straight from the bluegrass of Kentucky. With our special nano emulsion process, you'll not only get the best CBD available, you'll get more of it. Not all CBD is the same. It's your body. It's your choice. Get relief from inflammation, anxiety, and stress. Go to www.bluemoonhemp.com and use code HEMP420 for a 20% discount on your order. Balance your body. Balance your life. Make it Blue Moon CBD. 
Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. About a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow. The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chi Chin Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is him pink, that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we're back on Cannabis Radio. Michelle, you were talking about who uh, might benefit most from reading your book. Well, yeah, this is, um, you know, medical cannabis, uh, the modern um, version of medical cannabis that started in California in 96 and has moved to so many states now, is a natural experiment, and we're well underway. It's been over two decades that we're into this massive social experiment, and so little social science work is out there uh, for the um, for the um, lay reader, and so we just really wanted to write a book that could cross over, so beginners can get something out of it. But people who have a lot of knowledge about it will still find um, some new ways to think about it or create frameworks that really um, we really wanted to contribute something that integrated it into medical sociology and theories about health, not just criminology and not just the legal side of the story. Um, because uh, academic work can help change the conversation and and contribute uh, to legitimacy. And um, and I think an an important point about that is that by looking at it through that context, you can see that medical cannabis use is not fundamentally different from other medical behaviors because there's a lot of research on how people use medicines and deal with medical conditions and by looking at things like how people talk to doctors and how people decide about dosing and how they talk to family and friends and get information about things and comparing that to what other researchers have established in other circumstances, not about cannabis but about other things, we get to see that you know cannabis has some unique qualities as a medication, as a substance for sure, but how people use it is not radically different. In fact, it looks a lot like every other type of medical behavior around self-treatment. I've heard some people say that all cannabis use is medical. I've never known exactly what to think about that statement. You guys have talked about trends and doctor-patient interactions around cannabis. What can you tell us about current trends? Uh, how much are things changing? Well, uh, you know, one of the things that is changing is that doctors are becoming more aware of it, you know, and we were just at a conference in Denver, the Marijuana for Medical Professionals, and there's some just fascinating research going on, and that was just filled with clinicians who were there to try to learn more about how to help their patients, and that's fantastic, you know, these these are... uh, these were talks that carried with them continuing medical education credit. We still don't have medical schools that provide any training in the subject, so we're going to need to get there. Um, but you know, one of the things that we cover in the book is that, again, you know, the interactions folks have with their doctors look a lot like other circumstances in which things are moving from not being considered medical into being considered medical. And by applying what uh, folks have identified with how those work, you know, we get some insight into what's happening in the medical cannabis space, and Michelle can address what the kind of three basic types of interactions are. Yeah, so um, we took a model that was from Bruman Woodward, who had studied chronic fatigue syndrome and contested illnesses and looked at different types of doctor-patient interactions. We found it was a pretty good fit for what we were seeing um, with uh, patients who approach their doctors about medical cannabis. Um, And um, it's interesting to think about, too, because recommendations for cannabis, at least historically, I mean, the state programs have come about more recently, but often um, patients are only considering cannabis maybe years after they've actually been diagnosed. So um, it's in some ways it's a separate interaction than when you're receiving a diagnosis. This is uh, trying to figure out if a treatment is correct. And, of course, state programs identify 
what treatments um, are allowed to qualify um, under the state. So uh, what we found was um, there were three basic types of, of doctor-patient interactions. And the first, um, which they called doctor knows best, um, meant that you kind of had a paternalistic uh, model for a doctor who really um, just went by the type of information, um, you know, from, from medical journals and from practice that um, meant that they didn't, they weren't seeing that supported, uh, the use of medical cannabis supported in that literature, and so they were generally not for it, um, didn't believe necessarily that it had uh, medical efficacy and weren't going to recommend it. And then we had doctors who fit under a model called unintentional dominance, which just meant that they may or may not think that it was um, uh, an appropriate medical treatment, but for bureaucratic reasons, such as limitations because of federal funding, they couldn't sign your paperwork, or they may have just not been comfortable signing the paperwork uh, for a number of, of reasons related to risk to doctors. And um, the last model was uh, constructive medicalization, and this means that the doctor's more willing to hear the patient's point of view and understands how valuable it is if a patient is in involved and has some control over their care and is willing to kind of uh, within reason, um, you know, listen to the, what the patient um, recommends and, and what they feel might work for them or what is already working for them. And um, one of the interesting things is that um, the constructive medicalization also includes doctors who have often been derided as the doctor mill where uh, we argue that without doctors who were willing to sign paperwork, we would have never had functioning medical cannabis programs at the state level. You had to have somebody who was willing to, to sign that paperwork to have a functioning program. But patients are concerned with being legitimate patients. They want interactions that, uh, they want the interaction that's qualifying them to be a legitimate patient to be a legitimate interaction. And they often make that call based on um, the appearance of it. So uh, they want the, the appointment to be like a regular doctor's appointment and it's judged by the appearance of the place, of the doctor, of the staff. Um, and then others, they felt like they already had legitimate interaction with their own doctors and they saw it more like a DMV appointment. They didn't really care about that part. It was more a bureaucratic loop that you had to, you know, hoop that you had to jump through. So um, we saw both of those types of, of things in there. Some people, both patient, patients and advocates, feel that the advent of state legal recreational cannabis has eclipsed uh, that of medical cannabis and in some ways replaced it in some communities. In my state, we had a robust community-based dispensary system, uh, and once we got uh, 502, the initiative uh, approved here by the state voters, they shut down every single dispensary that existed and replaced it with a recreational system that was lottery-based, not even uh, uh, merit-based. Um, and now a lot of the patients here are saying that they don't have access to, number one, the support network, uh, but they also don't have access to the strains and some of the oils. In fact, our recreational stores can't even really talk much about medical marijuana. In your conversations with patients, have you seen or heard of anything like that taking place? Well, yeah. I mean, this is this is a concern uh, that patients have everywhere, um, and I mean, we saw this with Canada. The, you know, right before they went for adult use legalization, the spokesman for the Canadian Medical Association came out and said, "Okay, well, if we're going to have adult use, we can dispense with this medical stuff, right?" And you know, fortunately, wiser heads prevailed, and they did not do that. But I think the thing that's important to recognize is that trying to roll medical use back into an adult use model is doing the same thing that we're talking about in terms of the paradigm. It's saying that all use is equivalent, you know, that there's no distinction between using it as a recreational intoxicant and using it as a therapeutic substance. And but, but, that's but, aren't the, but, but aren't the uh, imperatives for the recreational store owners different as far as what products to have and stock and things like that. Uh, well, absolutely. What, what I see is them not focusing anymore on on patient uh, needs, kind of going after the rec market, which is bigger. 
Well, that's right. And, you know, part of what, uh, you know, is becoming more apparent, too, is that strain development, product development differs quite a lot depending on what it is you're trying to achieve with it. And the types of things that patients are looking for in terms of, you know, limiting uh, the symptoms of their conditions can be different than what you're looking for if you're going out to a party. So, you know, that just implies sort of different approaches and, again, sort of differences in how you use it and when you use it. You know, all the patients in the study were extremely mindful of how they were using it so that they could maintain the highest level of function in their roles in their lives, right? They, they were really concerned with that and employed a very common strategy used with pharmaceuticals that's often called min-max, where they're trying to minimize the amount of medication they're using and the side effects they're experiencing and maximizing their function. And that's just, again, quite different than, uh, you know, the other model. And of course, home grow enters into the paradigm or to the, to the, to the, to the picture uh, because some patients would rather be able to grow their own and know exactly what they're growing and have a little bit more control. Let's, let's back up a little bit. The two of you originally met during activities related to the cultivation author and activist Ed Rosenthal, a friend uh, his federal trial, I'm sure he's your friend too. How much of an impact did Ed's trial have on you both? Uh, was that a defining moment for you guys uh, or merely a reinforcement of opinions that you already had about cannabis prohibition and enforcement? Well, Ed's trial really drove the things home. Um, I worked with Ed for a number of years. I worked as an editor and publishing prior to working for Ed and I ended up working for Ed because I answered an ad in the paper. <laughs> this was back in uh, 1999, and the environment was quite a bit different back then. So the ad didn't say anything about cannabis, and they told me when I called to set, when they called me to set up the interview, um, you know that that's what the books were about, and gave me a chance to bow out at that point. But I was too curious to to see what that was all about, so I went and. I can still remember, just as I was starting to work there, asking if anybody in the office had been arrested related to working um, you know, on the issue. And at that time, the answer was essentially no. And, uh, and then um, during, <laughs> during my tenure there, I mean, Ed was arrested. Uh, it was the same day that Asa Hutchinson, who was uh, the head of the DEA at the time under Bush too, um, came to town to speak at the Commonwealth Club, I think. And um, I, I was one of the first people on the scene on that day. It was 2002. It was February 2002. And I believe uh, my coworker and I were the, uh, took the only photos from the raid at Ed's house that day. Um, and uh, it was... Um, Ed was incredible. We were all so nervous about... <laughs> how it was going to end up, but he was very determined, you know. He saw it as a as a watershed moment in a long career of activism and we were all just worried he was gonna end up in prison. Um and um I don't know, let let uh William I think um, I think well, fearless yeah. fearless might be an understatement with Ed, man. He yeah. is he is a force oh, yeah. to be recognized. No, he was he his attitude was bring it. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, I've been yeah, waiting my whole life for this. And, you know, and that was super impressive. I mean, it was terrifying to, to watch because the attorneys, everybody around him was like, you're going to prison. You know, that's just there's no question about it. And of course, the government was offering him plea deals and he rejected all of them because he said, no, I'm going to change the law. This case is going to change the law. And, you know, ultimately it did not. But I think it did change the conversation. You know, uh, I came in right as the trial was getting started, so right before pretrial stuff, and I came in because of the trial. Uh, again, an ad. Uh, I was working as an editor myself and doing some other, you know, as a professional writer. And when I saw that this was what was in the offing, and I, for my own reasons, wanted to be part of it because I wanted to find out more about how the, the law worked around medical marijuana. So, you know, for me, it was an amazing education in, you know, what counts as criminal justice. Uh, justice is not always so much 
the real thing involved, right? It's often much more procedural, and, you know, his case was a real instruction in that. But, you know, the publicity that he generated around the issue, I mean, it was front page of the New York Times. The New York Times editorialized about his case twice, about the injustice of it. And, and that moved the needle on the public conversation. Before that, reporters routinely would put scare quotes around the word medical and medical marijuana or refer to it as so-called medical marijuana. And after that case, that stopped, you know, and in part it was because he was operating under the aegis of the city of Oakland. He'd been deputized. It was so clear that this was about the legitimate needs of patients and nothing else. Well, and let's remember, I mean, he was found guilty in his trial because the jury was not able to hear anything about the state laws it was because it was not a state trial so um they did they did not allow mention of the state laws or all of um you know all, all everything associated with that and uh you know in a lot of ways it was a way that this single story language was being enforced inside the courtroom where you could only talk about it you know as being manufactured and what are your plant counts and you know all of these ways that that were not um medical and the jury recanted their verdict afterwards and it was an amazing case but you know he was found uh, guilty but there were there was time between that and when he was actually um sentenced and um, that was really, really tense. Um, but um, then in a, in a really interesting case of downward departure, they sentenced him to one day time served. And, you know, within uh, as soon as he was out of the courtroom, he was out there uh, up on the pulpit saying that it had been, you know, he'd actually been in jail for 28 hours, not 24, and they owed him four hours back, you know. <laughs> Um, so uh, he was just—he's just such a great, brave man, um, and um, he really showed me how, the difference a person can make. And and we see that with patients all around the country, and including many of the people who spoke to us in the interviews for this book. Uh, I mean, the the amount of courage that folks have around this issue is just remarkable, and it comes from deep conviction. And I think it's important to note that you know we in-depth interviews with 40 patients at midlife, so folks you know in the the middle range of their lifespan, and with only one exception, and, and she was a Jehovah's Witness, and so her religious faith would not allow her to violate the law. But every other one of those people said if the law changed tomorrow and it was illegal, they would not stop what they were doing. Um, and, you know, that kind of, I mean, and that's about self-care. That's about doing the right thing for yourself, for your family. Uh, but it's also about having great courage in the face of a lot of legal risk. And some of that gets described in the stories that uh, are included in the book, some of the horrific things that happen to folks. Well, I'm speaking no to wonder the drug war has failed, because what we found was that any negative interaction with the law actually just radicalized people to become more strong in their activism. It did not, it did not work in the opposite direction. So... I am speaking with Michelle Newhart and her husband, William Dolphin, discussing their new book, The Medicalization of Marijuana, Legitimacy, Stigma, and the Patient Experience. Stay tuned for the second half of our discussion. Time to roll out for the people that let us have present. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Now available for pre-order through crowdfunding for just $14 plus $10 shipping. Pouches, premium mixing and rolling pouches, allow you to carry and prepare your herbs for consumption with discretion and ease. These stylish pouches are handcrafted using strong zips, long-wearing buffalo leather outside, and smooth, cheap skin inside. A portion of proceeds go to fund vital medical research into cannabis for ADHD. See a demo and get yours now on Indiegogo or Pouches.com. That's P-O-U-C-H-Z.com. Strainwise Consulting is the most sought-after consulting company for cannabis business applications and management contracts. We consulted on the first recreational license in the world and have had an over 95% success rate on applications submitted. The industry is growing at such an exponential rate that building a powerful and lasting cannabis business 
is a number one priority. Here's Strainwise's Sean Eubanks. In our first five years, we branded and supported nine medical and recreational marijuana dispensaries and approximately 160,000 square feet of sophisticated and efficient product cultivation. Strainwise Consulting has the experience and expertise to guide you through the process. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be. The Vuber way. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. We're back on Cannabis Radio with Michelle Newhart and William Dolphin discussing their book, The Medicalization of Marijuana. This conversation is so fascinating that I had a discussion with my producers, and we've decided to uh, extend the show. And so we are here for the second half, and let's just dive in. Uh Folks, how much do you think that cannabis slash marijuana, uh, name your uh, descriptive term, is going to influence or perhaps even change how we approach medicine in the near or distant future? Is is, is cannabis going to be kind of a, a game changer in your opinion? Oh, I believe it has the potential to be so. Uh, certainly, I hope that it will. Um, I really believe, and we mentioned in the book, you know, that um, cannabis, I mean, one of the critiques that we've heard is that, um, you know, how can cannabis possibly treat so many things? But I think that's this uh, version that comes out of that single story of how it works and thinking about it as a single thing. And cannabis is not a single medicine. It has the potential to be an entire class of medicines, just as opiate-based medications have been. And at least in its whole plant form, we know it's unusually safe, not just compared to medications, but to many things that are commonly ingested, other foods and uh, uh, non-prescription drugs. And, um, you know, anecdotally, uh, patients have been reporting universally um, similar types of conditions in which cannabis is effective, I mean, around the world. And these are areas where commonly where we don't have good solutions already in our available medical options. So, And, and you mentioned um, opiates, and like opiates, we, we have an endocannabinoid system, which is really what's responding, the homeostasis, right, which is, which is why yes. cannabis is so effective in such a broad, wide range of, of applications, right? Well, that's right. And it's not just that it's, you know, homeostasis, it's that it's implicated in all the other systems. So your dopamine system, your serotonin system, I mean, all of these things are modulated and controlled by the endocannabinoid system. So there's a sense in which, I mean, we're coming to understand, you know, that this is the master of all of the other systems in your body. And so, you know, again, we were just at the conference hearing the doctors and researchers talk about, you know, exciting new developments. And it's quite clear that on that side, they are super excited about this and view this as enormously, uh, you know, useful in the future. I mean, there was a NIH researcher who just published an article in which they concluded, based on a review of all the available data, that all human disease states are implicated in the endocannabinoid system. So there's the potential, at least, for better understanding of the endocannabinoid system and how to activate it in various ways, including phytocannabinoids, like are found in the plant, you know, may be available treatments for almost everything that goes wrong. Um, now, you know, one of the chief challenges with this, of course, is getting the law out of the way with this. How it's crazy still is the it most that, that difficult. Our, our... How crazy is it that our government has spent almost a century with the most well-funded scorched earth campaign to wipe out cannabis, and it might be the most single, most effective treatment in the world? For I mean, is that crazy or what? Well, it, it was totally crazy. crazy. I mean, one of the things we said in the book that um, you know we we titled the book "The Medicalization of Marijuana," and just to be clear, we chose the term marijuana, not cannabis, because we feel like marijuana correctly represents the social construction of cannabis 
as this deviant, illicit substance that um, ha- it has been characterized as over the last century. And we really feel like that is the um, social construction that is being revised by medicalizing cannabis. And, um, you know, we argue that that social construction may be the most consequential social construction of the 20th century. I more mean, impacts, and it affects, more affects, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, well, one well, of the things that we have to get past with, a, with for the researchers, too, is thinking about it that way, right? So just because you're stigma. a doctor doesn't mean you think – the stigma, exactly so, and the stereotypes around what it means to be a user, right? I mean, there are still many states in which if you test positive for cannabis, even if you're using it with a doctor's recommendation, you lose your ability to get an organ transplant, because many and, doctors and, and, classify and, and, it as drug abuse, period. And, and treatment contracts, right? Pain management contracts. Exactly. The patient has exactly. to sign a piece of paper that says they will be cut off from all other treatments if they, if they prove anything alternative, including cannabis. Uh, and, and, man, I could, I could talk for the next hour about the stigma of cannabis because, you know, I've, I've got 30 years working against it. Um, speaking of well, the stigmatization, and- uh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and that, you know, I mean, that affects the research. Uh, there's still one extra hoop to uh, get federal research, clinical research underway in the United States uh, with cannabis. You can study crack more easily than you can cannabis. Um, and that's also bizarre given the relative safety profile of cannabis. And we also have a supply pro- uh, problem with the, uh, the stuff you would use for a study. Because if you're doing a federal study, you have to use the cannabis that comes from the federal farm in Mississippi. You know, and uh, we've had any number of folks come forward and say that I'm ready to help grow research-grade cannabis as well. We had a DEA's administrative law judge, Judge Bittner, say it's in the public interest. Let's get some more licenses. The DEA put out a call and said, okay, we're now accepting applications. And uh, the Department of Justice is sitting on them right now. It's been sitting on them for a year or so. There are all these kind of administrative delays and uh, one of the things that was really startling in the conference, we heard Dr. Raphael Meshulam, the chemist in Israel who identified THC and whose lab is still producing amazing research, talking about some of the things that have been discovered about the therapeutic potential that nothing is being done on. Schizophrenia. They found that high-dose CBD, 700 to 800 milligrams a day, was as effective as the most powerful antipsychotic in controlling Wait a minute, schizophrenia. I thought it caused schizophrenia. Yeah, right. Ask Dr. Grinspoon about that one, right? Right. Right, but, you know, we have all this mythology around it, you know, and we've always looked at it. Isn't that because cannabis has been a very effective tool in the culture war? Well, that's right, and Michelle Alexander's got a lot to say about that, right, with uh, the new Jim Crow, you know, selective enforcement. When you're fighting the drug war, you have to go look for the criminal and look for the crime. There's no victim to report it, and so, you know, the police and the prosecutors get to pick who they want to put in jail for it, and, you know, it's always been that way. I mean, John Haldeman from the Nixon administration has come forward and said, you know, it was a purely political matter for Nixon, and, you know, they had two two enemies, uh, and the drug war was about trying to control both those groups, nothing else. How is the medicalization of cannabis marijuana undermining the stereotype of the cannabis user? Well, you know, it diversifies who it is that we recognize as a user. I mean, that's how stereotypes break down. You know, we have stereotypes because there's some characteristic of a group that we recognize as being, well, yeah, you know, that's that's a thing. But then it gets over-applied, well, right? Yeah, exactly. It gets over-applied and generalized, and it's, of course, never true of all individuals who are part of the group. So cannabis users come in a lot of different varieties. And, you know, Tommy Chong is one of them, and he's a friend, and he's awesome. You know, but that's not everybody. And, of course, the representation in the movies is not who he really is either, right? You know, we kind of reduce people to caricatures with stereotypes. And when you get a medical user who's enormously sympathetic, then it becomes really difficult to look at what they're doing as something that's criminal or morally suspect or wrong. 
And, you know, we've seen some real uh, differences, you know, since Sanjay Gupta's documentary about uh, Charlotte's Web and the kids with pediatric seizure disorders and the effectiveness of using um, cannabis-based medicines for them. And nobody can argue that a five-year-old kid who's having 100 seizures a day is just a stoner. Yeah, of course, for, for years, it was the hippie in the Grateful Dead short, or it's got to be, it's a Rasta man with dreadlocks. But now, cannabis images or memes are being replaced with an entrepreneur, an investor, uh, uh, an, an, an elderly patient. Uh, it's, it's really a, a rapidly changing these stereotypes. Do you agree? I do, but then you also get things like today and the in the Washington, uh, was it in the, or maybe it was in the Wall Street Journal, um, John Boehner writing an op-ed about legalizing cannabis. And um, I think there's a lot of concern for people who have stayed the course and worked hard to fight for this issue um, or those who have uh, suffered consequences as a result of the laws. Um, and then you have people coming in who have changed sides and um, I'm not, not saying, I mean, maybe that is a necessary part of normalizing things, but at the same time, I think there are a lot of new concerns that come with that concerns about it being corporatized concerns about it yeah. being pharmaceuticalized and taken out of the hands of individuals and about where we draw the lines between good cannabis and bad cannabis or good users and bad users and yeah. a lot of that is going to be determined by how we set the rules that we are in the process of, of setting as things come out of, um, you know, as we enter a, um, a new era. Um, you know, we're not quite to a post-prohibition world here in the U.S., but as, um, as you were mentioning before, the rules in your state, um, you know, yep. these, these, these rules have consequences for, for who has e easy access and who does not? Th those of us that are old-time activists have a lot of mixed feelings about, you know, what we see as opportunists and carpetbaggers and even uh, traditional drug warriors all of a sudden on the bandwagon so they could make some money. How do, how do you, you know, I mentioned THC in my intro, and I'm almost beginning to wonder if people are going to remember what THC is. Um, how, how about this TCBD craze? Is it overblown? How, how important is the... Uh, uh, the entourage effect or whole plant therapy or, or all this, all of the cannabinoids, are, are we overdoing this CBD craze? Well, I mean, we understand how crazes work, right? Something new comes along and people get excited about it and they jump on the bandwagon. And, and it's quasi-legal. Well, uh, some I don't know if you want to get into the details around I, that. I don't. The, de I don't, the DEA is quite clear that it is not legal. Well, it's being the only sold CBD medicine that is legal. It's sold in a pharmacy right down the street from me, which shows you how weird this whole thing is because it's not technically legal. It's being no, tolerated. it's not. The DEA is clear. You know, they, they, and, they, and the argument, of course, is that if you've extracted it from hemp and hemp is legal, then the product is legal. But the DEA has issued guidance on this. You can find it on their website in which they say, without any equivocation, if you extracted a cannabinoid from it, whether it's CBD or THC, it wasn't hemp under their it, definition. What does it say – uh, about the, the, the zeal to profit off of cannabis that it is questionably uh, legal or it is illegal and yet you have these mainstream business chains selling it anyway. Well, well it's interesting uh, you because know, I think it has a lot to do with uh, the question of intoxication. And, um, you know, CBD is, is, is being touted as the the medical side of cannabis without the um, stain of you know <laughs> intoxication that, that has been stigmatized, and I mean that gets into another interesting sociological angle of just thinking about how we as a society treat all um, intoxication as the same. 
when obviously it's not. You know, cannabis intoxication is different than others. But, you know, back to the, the bigger question about is CBD, you know, a medicine, the entourage effect, all the various components of it. You know, there's no question that the whole plant offers things that the individual components don't. Anybody who's been prescribed Marinol or also called Dronabinol knows that, right? I mean, it just is not the same as getting a whole plant thing. You know, um, what we have seen, you know, in the research is that by modulating the various components of it, you get markedly different effects in terms of the therapeutic qualities of it. And that's the brave new world of research right now is trying to parse that out. And again, as Michelle said, I mean, we should expect to see a whole class of drugs come out of these. Some of these will be CBD dominant. Some of them will be, you know, CBN, some of the other cannabinoids. We're, we're only just coming to the very beginnings of understandings about how this works, just as we're only beginning to really figure out how the endocannabinoid system works. Well, and I really believe we couldn't have gotten here with the stigma changing as it is now without the scientific developments that we've had. I think science walks hand in hand with the dismantling of stigma because if you don't have an evidence base you, you don't have anything to push back against rhetoric that's only based in ideology and not in evidence. But that science is still, it's still catching up. It's still um, figuring this out. And so far, we really don't have um, medicines developed from cannabis that are not whole plant cannabis that are equivalently um, effective to whole plant cannabis without side effects. So... That's something that is still in progress. And of course, the FDA has just approved the first plant-based medicine. FDLX. Yeah, and right. and that shows great promise, but that's also created confusion because that's a you know basically a pure CBD extract. So folks have said, oh well, look, CBD is legal now, and but it's not. The FDA and the way they do things said. You know, not just only this, not anything else that looks like it, but they also said only for these very specific rare pediatric seizure conditions. So if you happen to be an adult with epilepsy, too bad. You can't use it. You know, I, I've interviewed a parent of a child with epilepsy, Dravet syndrome, uh, even autism spectrum uh, on this show. I've interviewed a parent in Ireland, England, South Africa, uh, New Zealand, uh, and 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 other places, and they it's weird because the stories are identical. The only thing that changes is their accent, um, yeah. and they're all fighting the same identical type of prohibitionist uh, baloney. Let's while we still have a little time left, let's focus back on your book for a minute. Your book focuses on patients who are in midlife or older, a result of interviews that you conducted with patients from 30 to 68 years of age. What's unique about that demographic? Why did you choose that 30 to 68 age range? Sure. Well, at the time, um, I was living in, you know, a college town, a university town, and there were other other people doing research on cannabis among those of college age and early adulthood. And I would say the bulk of the research is on early adulthood use. Um, and in fact, non-medical social uses uh, have a predictable pattern of use during adolescence. And this is what we've been um, so concerned with in terms of outcomes, uh, in in terms of how the literature has played out. But in fact, the average age of medical cannabis users is across most settings, the late 30s or early 40s. So this seemed like an important group to pay attention to and understand how they were coming to be patients and their attitudes and behaviors and their overall experience. Um, and like it was a gap. So... And there's also a difference, of course, in initiating cannabis use when you're middle-aged and married and a professional versus you're in college and somebody is passing a joint around, right? So it's a, it's a different set of concerns. The perception of risk is different. Um, and the folks uh, who were interviewed for this book, you know, were extremely mindful of that issue, you know, the, the kinds of consequences that might come to them. Uh, because of their cannabis use, and that that's different as you've got more to lose. Uh, we only have a few more minutes uh, left for our discussion. Is there a place, you think, in your opinion, uh, for smokable marijuana in, in the medical paradigm? 
Well, it is the most common delivery method. Um, and to be clear, you know, smoke is not great in terms of all of the things that it carries with it. You know, you've got bronchial irritants, you've got TARS, you've got things along with it that are not therapeutic in any sense. Um, so, you know, that's a little bit problematic. Now, we also have, you know, good Baby. research that, uh, well, that even folks who've smoked 20,000 joints over the course of their life don't suffer any higher rate of lung cancer, emphysema, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Little higher rate of bronchitis. But yeah, vaping. Uh, vaporizers are an outstanding alternative, and they deliver most of the same cannabinoids. But, you know, delivery devices and coming up with stuff that is more standardized is important. Many of the patients in the study described going to great lengths to try to standardize dosing. So again, they're trying to maintain role functioning, so they can't have too many side effects. In other words, they can't be too intoxicated from it and still take care of the things they need to. So measuring things out and little spoonfuls and you know things like that. And one of the things that's great about inhalation, of course, is that you get immediate feedback on exactly how much you've taken on board. And uh, you know, there's all the stories about edibles. You know, oh uh, man. It's, yeah, and, and of course, edibles. Smoking or inhaling also has a has a shorter arc, so um, right. the effects aren't going to last as long if you do um, go over your intended dose. The only time but, I know, ever for, go ahead. Well, you know, and for folks who have chronic pain or trying to get through the night, you know, a longer trajectory of effect is important. They're seeking that. Uh, but if you're taking an edible, you end up with a different metabolite that is far more psychoactive than an inhaled version. So again, you're changing the effectiveness based on delivery methods. So we're going to see a lot more development of delivery methods uh, to produce different effects, both therapeutically and otherwise. I was going to say that I, the only time I ever left the Grateful Dead show in the middle of the show is a time that I had started eating uh, some some parking lot brownies I bought from some girl in a hippie dress <laughs> at 7 in the morning without breakfast while we were smoking cannabis. And, uh, and man, about halfway through the show, I, I started feeling really bad. And I really felt like I was dying. I was – heart yeah. was pounding. I couldn't breathe. I was white and pasty and sweating. And I threw up all over my car. I couldn't drive. My girlfriend had to drive us home. She didn't have a license. Um, it was a terrible experience, and I've had a joke for a while that if you eat too many pharmaceutical drugs, you feel like you're going to live forever, but you're probably going to die. And if you take too much cannabis, you probably feel like you're going to die, but you might live forever. And, and of course, it's just a joke. Uh, there's no truth yeah. in it. we we got about a minute left. Any final thoughts about, about your book? Michelle? Um, well, there's more that we touch on in the book than we were able to talk about here, and we just hope we get to keep on doing this work and helping fill that gap where research on this huge natural experiment that is underway, um, you know, gets done so that we, uh, we have better knowledge. And, you know, the, there's a real place for behavioral science. You know, we've talked a lot over the last several years about how we need more clinical research on therapeutic uses of this. Let's really find out how it can fight cancer, how it can handle seizure disorders, how it can do things for neurological problems like Alzheimer's and things like that. But we need behavioral research, too, that says how are people actually using this substance and what does it look like relative to other things so that we can make much more intelligent policy choices and you know that's just super important and it's uh, really our hope that this helps launch more of that kind of research. Michelle Newhart and William Dolphin what a fascinating uh, discussion folks can find out much more at your website newhartdolphin.com n-e-n-e-w-h-a-r-t-d-o-l-p-h-i-n.com thank you both for being on Hemp Present for shining light on these critical issues at this important time in everything cannabis thank you Vivian thanks so much for having us my pleasure now I'm going to get to a weekly feature Hemp Present on CannabisReader.com that's the quote of the week and here it is and I quote if we know that we believe in civility and radical kindness and continue to show it in spite of the nastiness and cruelty of our opposition, then we may suffer some defeats, but we ultimately win the war. And perhaps, more importantly, along the way, we help create a politics and a culture worth fighting for. That's political commentator, community organizer, Sally Kahn. That 
concludes this installment of 100% on Cannabis Radio. I want to thank Brasco, my man in the control room, all the Cannabis Radio sponsors and advertisers. Join me next week for some more reefer repartee and cannabis confabulation with some special hempo sapien on her journey to justice. As we silence the violence, increase the peace, and promote unity in the cannabis community, with impunity because when it comes to prohibition you've got a right not to remain silent activism requires a voice find yours and speak up for justice because resistance is for time until then my friends stay strong stand tall toke it easy and don't forget to email me at gmail.com there's a theme song take back my stupid son by a much younger version of myself turn on the music maestro out marijuana The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.